We are going to read uh, the Word of God now. So we are going to be reading from Acts chapter 4, starting to read from verse 32, which is on page 1096 on the Bibles that you find on the table. So page 1096, Acts 4, starting to read at verse 32. So under the um, heading of the uh, the believers share their possessions. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money, to the, uh, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostle called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, a man called Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself and brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias... How is it that Satan has filled your heart, that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how can you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her alongside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Well, good morning, everybody. It's uh, great to see you all here and really good to be able to come and uh, meet around God's word. It may be one or two more people are still going to come back in. I'm not sure yet. Um, But uh, let's just pray uh, before we continue. Uh, Father, we want to thank you this morning for your great love for uh, people such as us. Lord, we just thank you for the Lord Jesus. And we thank you for the good news about him. And we thank you for your word. Father, we pray that this morning your word would be like fire, that it would purify us, Lord. We ask that your word would be like a hammer, that, Lord, you might knock some things home with us that need knocking home. Uh, Father, we pray that your word would be like a sword, that you, are, you would touch our hearts, that you would deal with us in your grace, 
Lord, that you would shape us and mould us. Lord, that we might feel the cutting edge of your word, dear God. Lord, that your word might do us good today. So, Father, we acknowledge that we desperately need your help as we look at your word now. Lord, the flesh profits nothing. This isn't about being clever with words. It's not about doing things in a clever way that impresses people. Lord, we want to do business with you this morning. More importantly, Lord, we want you to do business with us. And so, dear God, we pray in Jesus' name for the power, the presence, the help of your Spirit as we look at your word. Please hear us. Please help us. Please respond to us, because we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) I guess um, all of you like doing great things. Uh, Sandra and I had a great walk this week. We picked Wednesday, we saw the weather forecast, we knew the sun would be shining. It was a great day, we had a great walk. And this week we've had some great food. And so often, I think we all describe things as as being great. We talk about having a great time. I saw um, a great car this week. Did anybody see this? This was a great car. 1,000 miles an hour. Right? That's what it would do. They tested it on the airfield at Newquay in Cornwall. They only tested it up to 200 miles an hour. But what a great car. Now, <clears throat> admittedly, it wasn't so great because it only had one seat. So if I wanted to take Sandra and the grandchildren shopping, they'd have been sitting on top of this jet engine on the back. <laughs> and it didn't have a boot. If it had, had a boot, it had got burnt off with a back burner. <clears throat> And if I was parking it, well, that would be an absolute nightmare because there's no parking space in the UK for a car like this. In lots of ways it was great, okay, in some ways it wasn't so great. We often talk about things that are great and we say we've had a great time and that's good. But actually, sometimes we oversell words and the word great doesn't actually mean quite what we sort of want to think it means. But actually, in the Acts of the Apostles, in these first four chapters, we have seen some truly great things. We saw early on the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ back to heaven. What's greater than that? Actually, there is something greater. That's Jesus coming back out of heaven. (laughs) But I tell you what, seeing him go up, That was a great thing. Those disciples had something to tell their children and their grandchildren. That was amazing. We saw the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. That was a great thing. For God to come and bless his church and to presence himself with them such that when ordinary fishermen stood up to preach, 3,000 people trust the Lord. Isn't that great? 
We'd love it if three people in Camborne trusted the Lord, wouldn't we? 3,000? That's great. That's fantastic. And in fact, we saw this healing of a man that couldn't walk. For 40 years he couldn't walk. Every day they stuck him at the gate of the temple. Until this one day, when Peter comes and John, and they say, we haven't got any money. Because he was begging. We haven't got any money. But what we do give you, we give you. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And he walked. And God gives this man that ability. And he went into that temple, walking and leaping and jumping and shouting and praising God. I wonder if your heart's doing that this morning. Because you know what great things God has done for you. And in fact, as we went on and we saw last week, that the people were not just praising God, but God came and presenced himself with them. The building was shaking. There's an earthquake. And then it's not just 3,000 that are converted. We're told the number grows to 5,000 men. And that probably means there were a lot more than 5,000 believers. That was just men, but there's at least 5,000 people. We've seen some great things. And as God has been growing his church, as he's been planting it and setting it off on this launch pad in Acts, we have seen opposition to the gospel. Because there's some people who haven't liked what's happening. And the apostles have been put in prison, they've got out and there's been opposition. Today, we see more opposition. But it's not from outside the church today. It's from inside. And I want to suggest to you that a Trojan horse is much more dangerous than the attack from outside. The enemy within is far worse. Someone has said this, the church has never, ever been hindered by opposition from outside. Never been hindered by that. But it has been perpetually harmed by sin within. And that's what we see today. Now I've got two key verses for you. And uh, you can have what key verses you want from here. Um, You might want to memorise the whole passage. Uh, But my first key verse is verse 32, the first one we read. All the believers were one in heart and mind. All the believers were one in heart and mind. (laughs) Do you realise how staggering that is? We're not talking about a church with 30 or 40 or 50 members. We're talking about a church of 5,000 people plus. And we're told that all the people were one in heart and mind, or heart and so, well, how do we explain that? I think the only way we can explain it is by getting rid of that little uh, sub-chapter heading that we've got. The believers share their possessions. Sometimes these little headings get in the way of us really putting together what's going on. 
You see, the key to verse 32 is verse 31. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. This is because these people were Spirit-filled people. The Holy Spirit came and changed their lives. And this is what makes a Christian a Christian, isn't it? It's not believing in God. The devil believes in God. He's not going to church. The devil goes to church, you know. Somebody said uh, the de- Satan's biggest activity is in the pulpit. No, it's believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's being born again and having that Spirit of God within us that gives us new life, that makes the Word of God come real and true and enables us to turn from our sin and trust in the Lord Jesus alone to get us to heaven. I always want to ask people, you know, when they say they're Christians, I want to say, well, why do you think God's going to let you in? It's a key question. We need to know the only reason we can get in is because Jesus loved me to death and he died for me and he rose again for me and he's coming again for me. And these people were one in heart and mind because they had all trusted in Christ and they were one in what they were about. Jesus said this, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And Jesus had prayed that his disciples may all be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The unity of God's people is a great way for the world to know that we are the Lord's. In other words, this is all a work of grace, and by that I mean it's God's favour, it's God's blessing. These people didn't deserve to be Christians. They're not Christians because they're good enough or religious enough. They are Christians because God has blessed them such that they can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and commit their lives to him. This is a work of grace. And verse 33 spells this out, uh, the end of it. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them. And uh, another translation says, great grace was upon them all. This is our second key verse, if you like. The first one is, the believers are one in heart and mind, And this is the key thing to understand this passage. Great grace, God's favour, God's blessing was upon them all. And God was moving. And I just want to suggest to you there are four ways in which we see the evidence of God's work in their hearts and lives. Uh, And if you've got notes, you'll have the four points there. A great grace, I've said, produces great unity. Great grace produces great unity. All the believers were one in heart and mind. 
we're not 5,000 folks. We're not even 50. But this should be our objective, you know. We should want to be one in heart and mind. One in heart and soul. And this must be a key focus for us. And I would suggest this. If we don't have this focus, or if a church loses this focus, there's a sense in which the church loses its way. We must have this in mind because we are the Lord's people and the Lord is one and he has one church. It must be your focus. It must be my focus. It must be our focus if we're members of this church. And this unity uh, wasn't just a name. It, it wasn't a charade. It was a real unity. They really were one in heart and soul. This involved their minds, their wills, what they want to do. It involved their emotions. We're emotional people. It was a real unity. Um, there's a saying of Aristotle when he was asked, well, what is a friend? He said, a friend is one soul in two bodies. And that's what the church was. It was one soul in 5,000 bodies. There's a real unity. There was a preoccupation with each other, with ministering to serving each other, having an awareness of other people. This is what Paul meant when he wrote Philippians 2, and I put this, this text in, in your notes. He says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That's what we should be aiming for. And then he says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's challenging, isn't it? I've got to think you are more important than me. All the time. I've got to be thinking about you first. Let each of, each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I have to think what is best for you. So what I do has an impact on people. And if what I do impacts you negatively, I need to change what I'm doing. I have to be thinking about you more than me when I'm making decisions. Whatever that's about. And then we get the example of the Lord Jesus who put us first when he went to the cross. He laid aside his glory. He laid aside his privileges. Why? Because he loved me. And the Lord says, this is how we're to love one another. And these believers were one in heart and mind. And can I say, this is what membership of this church is about? It's not about what you get out of it. It's about what you put into it. Membership isn't about you. It's about other people. It's about what you can do to help others 
in their spiritual walk. And remember this, when we love and serve one another, we are serving the Lord Jesus himself. This is how we love the Lord. How can we say we love God if we hate our brother? You can't. The evidence that we love the Lord Jesus Christ is that we love the Lord's people. So what I want to say to you is this. We don't fall out over small things. We don't fall out over petty things. Oh, we might fall out over big things. If you say to me, oh, I don't think Jesus is God, oh, we're going to fall out over that. If you think, I can get to heaven by doing my best and trying, oh, we're going to fall out over that. Big time. Yeah, we'll fall out over the big things. But we know the gospel in this church. We love the gospel. We're not going to fall out over small things. So this afternoon, when you get to the, the light party, and someone's at your place in the kitchen, because you've actually put your name down to be in the kitchen, and you get there, and the kitchen's full up. And you think, oh. Right? If someone's doing the bobbing apples, and you wanted to do it, we're not going to fall out, brothers and sisters, over these things. Uh, let me tell you, Christians do. Christians have done. <clears throat> we have to be bigger than those small things. Because this is going to happen today. You know that, don't you? You're going to get there with a plan. And someone else, another member of this church, is going to screw your plan up. Because they got there first. And what I say to you is, rejoice. Someone's doing the job. Just go and find something else to do. Great grace produces great unity. As Paul said in Galatians 5, through love, serve one another. And as he said to the Ephesians, <clears throat> endeavour, be diligent, be keen to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But great grace doesn't just produce great unity, it produces great generosity. And... Uh, Christ gave everything for these people and now these people are prepared to give everything for him. And you know, when you become a Christian, when you know what Christ has done for you, that changes your world view. It changes the way that you see things. It changes the way that you see money and wealth. The world is chasing these things, right? The world wants to win the lottery. I read of a man last week, I think this was in the States, he won this same thing three, three weeks running. And they, they say statistically this is absolutely impossible. And it is a big, big jackpot. Three weeks running. Poor man. Poor man. He thinks he's got the world. He's got nothing. A 19-year-old man went out for a night out in Campbell two nights ago, as you know. When he went out, he might have been thinking, I wonder if it would be my 
day to win the lottery this Saturday. He might have already bought his ticket. It might have come up as a winning ticket yesterday. Life is very short. You, we don't know when the end is coming for any of us. And what you've got, you can't take with you. The Christian knows this. Jesus told a story about a man who sells everything to get that, that great reward, that treasure. And the treasure's Christ. Jesus said, if a man believes in me, he has eternal life. Nothing else is eternal. The jackpot is going to go. We can't keep it. These people had a different view of money and wealth. And we're told in verse 34, I mean in verse 32, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. They shared everything they had. And in verse 34, there were no needy persons among them. The people that were needy, the people who had, just gave to them. It didn't matter. They sat light with these things. These things were not what their life was about. It, it grieves me sometimes I find my life is full of things. And I love some things. But I have to remember, everything's temporary. Everything's short term. And we must never set our hearts on things. God's grace was powerfully at work in them so that there were no needy persons among them. Do you see this? This isn't natural. This is supernatural. This was God touching people's hearts and lives and changing them. Changing their will, changing their thinking, such that they could freely give things away. They shared everything. They wanted to help. Of course, with 5,000 people in the church, you couldn't help everyone. So they had a system when they were selling their land, as some did from time to time, or sold a house, they gave the money to the leaders, to people who would then distribute it. Now it's important to say, this isn't a collective. This isn't communism. This isn't um, uh, a new way of doing things. There was no law about their giving. Christian, there's no law about your giving except the law of love. That was the law. Their giving was entirely voluntary. Entirely voluntary. And that's how all of our giving has to be. Uh, Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 9, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. What's your giving like? What sort of expression is on your heart when you're giving? We can give reluctantly, you know. God loves a cheerful giver. Giving must come from the heart. We must do it because we want to do it. We must never give because we feel we must do it. 
The Christian life does not work on laws. It works on love. And don't think that this is about selling land and houses. It's not. That actually doesn't really matter. Uh, Don't start with selling. Start with one heart and one mind. In their giving, heads and hearts are both in it. And they're all in it, and it creates a real unity. And there's a problem when our heads are in it, in our giving, but not our hearts. Uh, Someone else said, when giving is a burden, it's not giving. Giving should be a blessing. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Uh, The writer of the Hebrew says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And chapter 4 ends with this, really positive example of a man called Joseph, who was called Barnabas. And Barnabas simply means son of encouragement. How encouraging when God's people give willingly and freely. So God's grace produces a great unity. It produces a great generosity. But it also provides great power We're told, verse 33, God's grace was powerfully at work in them. And we see this in two senses. One is, with great power, verse 33, the the apostles uh, testified to the resurrection. That's interesting about the resurrection here. When you talk to somebody about the Lord, what do you talk about? I think resurrection is one of the last things I talk about sometimes. It seems to me that resurrection was one of the first things the apostles talked about. And I just wonder for myself, and perhaps you might think this, perhaps when I'm talking to non-Christians, I need to speak more about resurrection. Because everybody's interested in what happens after we, we die. And God gives us every springtime a massive visual aid of resurrection with all of creation. But the apostles were preaching resurrection and God was there working powerfully amongst the people. Of course this is offensive to some, that's why the apostles had been locked up for a short time. But let's be encouraged to talk about the resurrection as well as the death of the Lord Jesus. Um, I think this could be a key thing for me in thinking about. Uh, Resurrection of the Lord Jesus is a vital teaching and it guarantees my resurrection and the resurrection of every Christian. There's a resurrection of the just and the unjust. Everyone has to stand before a holy God, and give an account. So let's be encouraged to preach about the resurrection. But God provides great power in these people, these people giving. As I say, this wasn't an ordinary work. This was God moving hearts. 
I don't know where any of you have done uh, much gardening. I know some of you have. Um, I remember years ago, I tried to um, get some rockery stones for my brother. I was a young man then, and I found this big sandstone in the sand hills near where I lived. And it wasn't that big, but boy was that heavy. And it took two of us, struggled to lift this in the back of the car. And it, it looked so small, but it was so heavy. Do you know the Bible, God likens people's hearts sometimes to stone that won't move. What God did here, he moved the stone. He moved their hearts. You've seen some of those storms recently across the world. You've seen great boulders <laughs> moved a long way. The power of God can move hearts. It's a mighty work of God. In Ezra, we read this. Everyone whose heart God had moved prepared to go and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. We need to pray for God to move our hearts if they're not moving. It's a mighty work of God. And we need our hearts moved and we need wisdom because in the world there's a lot of needs. There's a lot of needs amongst God's people and you can't do everything and you need wisdom how you give. Um, John says, if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's be encouraged to give, and may God open our eyes to see where those needs are. Say so this man Barnabas, he's called a son of encouragement. He did what he could. He gave what he had. And there's a sense in which we need to be people like Barnabas. And we need to do what we can do. And give what we can give. And, and lastly, in chapter 5, we see great grace produces great fear. Having got this positive example of Barnabas, we now get a negative example. Ananias and Sapphira. Satan is attacking from inside. Did you notice what Peter said? How is it that Satan has filled your heart? The last man we read about in the scriptures like this was Judas. Satan filled their hearts. And these are people that I think are professing Christians. I can't tell you what their real standing is. God doesn't tell us, but they are professing Christians. And they sin. Uh, first of all, let's say what this sin wasn't. This sin was not owning land or owning money. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with having money in the bank. Many of God's people have been wealthy people in the past. You see it in the scriptures. 
And money can be a means of great blessing. This sin was not about money or land. It was not about selling the land and keeping some of the money. There's nothing wrong if they'd have sold the land and kept some of the money. It was their land. They could do what they wanted with that land. They were at liberty to either keep their money or give it away. There wasn't a law. There's no rule. They had absolute freedom on the decisions they made. So what was the sin? Well, you say the sin was lying. Well, it was lying. It was lying, absolutely. But it wasn't just lying. Do you see what was going on? Just think about it. From time to time, people were selling stuff and giving the money away. And we got this picture of Barnabas. And he sold this land and he comes and he puts this money at the apostles' feet. I guess this was done publicly to an extent. But how did that look? Well, we don't know the truth of this, but obviously Ananias and Sapphira thought there was some kudos in actually selling some stuff and giving it to the apostles to give away, because aren't we good? Didn't that look cool? This sin was not just lying, it was hypocrisy. They were putting on a show. They were making out it's one thing when it's something else. Oh, they were lying, but this was hypocritical. This was pride. I think this was showing off. Why else would you want to give some of the money and say it's all of it? We've given everything, aren't we good? I think it's selfishness. They wanted to keep some of it for them. Nothing wrong with keeping some of it for themselves. It was theirs. But it was covetousness. They wanted to keep that whilst they're making out they've given it all to God. And perhaps when they saw people like Barnabas giving everything, perhaps they were envious of the sort of kudos that created. And so Ananias and Sapphira conspire together and they hatch this little plan to sell their land and then give the apostles part of the money and make out it's the whole lot and keep some for themselves. Do you know, God hates religious performance when there's no heart in it. God hates it. Do you know in the Old Testament, there's several times when God says of the temple, I wish they'd shut the doors. I don't want them coming and singing and praising my name. They're hypocrites. I don't want their sacrifices. God wants one thing. And he wants one thing from me and one thing from you. That's your heart. Give me your heart, my son, Proverbs says. God hates sin, but he especially hates hypocrisy. 
You've only got to read the Gospels and see how Jesus got on with the Pharisees. It was hypocrisy through and through. I think it was Campbell Morgan said, um, honesty never ever made God angry. God never gets angry when we are honest with him. But hypocrisy stinks in his nose. And they didn't just lie, Peter says. They lied to God. Verse 3. You have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. And Peter says, it was yours. You could do what you want with it. You could sell it, you could give it away, you could do what you want. And he ends up there in verse 4. You have not lied just to men, but to God. And that little passage tells us the Holy Spirit is God himself. You don't lie to a force, you lie to a person. And they lied to the Holy Spirit, and in doing that, they lied to God. The Holy Spirit is God himself. And we read, they tested God in verse 9. They tested the Spirit of the Lord. They put God to the test. As somebody else said this, there's no purchasing power in dishonesty. Judas might gain 30 pieces of silver, but he could never spend them. And ultimately that is true. And the result in Acts 5 is judgment of the worst kind. Because God strikes Ananias down dead. You could do a a post-mortem, and you might see that he died of a heart attack, whatever. But God struck him dead, and he died on the spot. They didn't have funeral services like we have. They took him out and they buried him. And three hours later, his wife comes in. And Peter wants to know now, has she lied as well? And he asked her straight out. Did you sell the land for this much? She said, yeah. And Peter said, you're lying as well. And she dropped down dead as well. Great fear came upon the church. God fires a shot across the bowels of the early church. I am holy. You need to be holy. We don't have death in the church like that now. But this was the early church and God was saying, look, sin's serious. You need to be pure and holy. You need to be righteous. And God wants a church that isn't just united. He wants a church that's holy and takes sin seriously. We're told great fear sees the whole church. And then we're told it sees those outside, all who heard these events. Shocking, isn't it? Isn't it shocking? Don't you find this passage difficult? It is difficult, but in the early church, God was working in ways he's not working now. 
people, Christians, died because of God's judgment at Corinth as well. It was serious. But God was doing a great work. And praise God, he's still continuing to work today. And we want God to work. We read there, God's grace was powerfully at work within them all. That's what we should be praying for, brothers and sisters. That's what we should need. And if we have that, we should see the evidence of that grace working in our lives such that we have a unity in life and doctrine. We should be generous towards one another and towards God's people. We should have power in our service for God and in our witnessing. And there should be that reverence and awe, that fear of God within our hearts. Um, that helps us to live in a way that honours him and really is helpful to one another. May God help us to learn from this passage and to give him the glory um, for the great things that he's doing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of great grace. We thank you there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. We thank you there's forgiveness for everyone who turns from their sin and trusts in the Lord Jesus. Father, we ask that in our church here, you would grant us a true unity of heart and mind and soul. We pray to God you'll give us hearts that not only love you, but love one another and are generous to one another. We ask, dear God, that you'll give us the power to witness for you and the power to live for you. And Father, we pray to God, you'll give us such a holy fear of you that others might see and know and trust you for themselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we usually have a short time of questions, so I'll give you a couple of moments if you want to chat on your tables um, for a moment, and then if you've got questions, I'll try to answer them. Um, uh, if this embarrasses you, don't worry, just uh, go and get another drink or look out the window. Um, um, please don't feel you have to take part in this, but this is an opportunity if, if you want to ask something. I'll do give you just a couple of minutes, and then we'll... Carry on.